Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Prometheus Podcast, where we discuss all things macro, markets, and investing. I'm your host, Ahan, and I'm the founder of Prometheus Research. This is the second episode in a series of many podcasts to come, where we bring you thoughtful, insightful, and actionable conversations. Today, we have on an exceptional guest, Alfonso Pecatillo, author of The Macro Compass. The Macro Compass is the largest macro substack out there, and with good reason. Alfonso has a deep and rich understanding of the monetary system, which he's weaponized into an actionable investment framework. His approach is cogent and extremely relevant in today's policy setting. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Alfonso, so great to have you on. Ahan, such a pleasure to be here. And uh, I can only endorse you at least to the same extent as you did for the Macro Compass. Very kind of you. Hey, I really appreciate that. Alfonso, let's dive right in. So to start us off, why don't you give us a little bit of your own background and the work you're doing at the Macro Compass? So I'm, uh, I'm an Italian guy, I guess, by only one sentence, you already got it from the accent. There is no way I can hide that away. Um, and I started in the business, uh, which means finance, roughly in 2013. So it's been nine years. Uh, for most of my career, I've been at ING Bank, which is a, a, actually a global bank, very large in Europe, but also large in the US, in Australia and other um, jurisdictions as well. And I run uh, fixed income portfolios when I started. Uh, for them. And then uh, the career went well and it progressed towards me running an entire multi-asset book for the German uh, subsidiary of the bank, which is the largest one they have. Um, it was a multi-asset class book uh, with both a relative return mandate against the benchmark and a total return mandate for a sub-portion of the book. We ran, again, mostly fixed income, but also credits, equities, FX, other asset classes. I was also advising the bank on how to steer the balance sheet exposure when it comes to optionalities, convexities, effects, uh, real estate, and other asset classes sitting on the balance sheet of the bank globally, which is almost a one trillion balance sheet. It was a pretty rewarding experience, I, I, I'm going to say. Also helped me a lot with um, understanding how to manage risks, talking to very smart people out there, from my mentors to people in investment banks and strategists and hedge fund guys in London and across the world. I learned a lot. And then by the age of 31, I think I felt like I needed something else. And that something else was being able to convey some of this knowledge or uh, at least my perspective of how markets and macro would, would evolve further through my data-driven macro framework I had built uh, throughout the years and actually share it with people, with listeners. So I set up uh, this free newsletter. It's called the Macro Compass. It's uh, 85,000 readers at the moment. I'm very happy about that, that all these people want to read what I have to say. I also have a Twitter account called... Uh, at MacroAlf, everything is free. So you, you feel free to check it out if you want. Alfonso, your, your background really shows in your work because you not only have an extremely pragmatic approach, but you also have a theoretically extremely sound one. I find the mix of things tends to be extremely unique. And I think that's really what attracts a lot of people. It's definitely what attracted me to your work. Um, so, you know, to start digging into stuff that you think about, one of the first things that comes to mind when I study your work is that um, you have an extremely strong grasp of the workings of the monetary system mm -hmm. and, you know, its affiliated markets. So for our audience, would you set the stage by outlining how you think about the monetary system and how it works in relation to the financial system? Very happy you asked this question, Ahan, because I think it's... Uh paramount important to set up a macro framework. 
The short answer to this question is that there are two forms of money. While people think about money as just money, in reality, there are two different forms of money. One is what I call the private sector spendable money. And the other one is the money for the financial sector, which is a completely different beast. And people always confuse and merge the two, but in reality, it's not that simple. They're two separate systems that have very, very little communication flows and very complicated ones, actually. Um, the, my understanding of the monetary system was actually enhanced by reading a lot of stuff, like a lot of stuff. And I can quote two or three very good books that I think everybody should read. Um, Pragmatic Capitalism by Cullen Roche, uh, where Cullen explains the different kinds of money and how they interact between each other. It's a very good primer, a very short book and very, very well written. Um, Central Banking 101 by Joseph Wang, uh, my friend, also known as the Fed guy on, uh, on Twitter, a former, former Fed trader at the repo desk. He also explains very well how the monetary system works and the various interactions. So if you start reading this book, say, and then, that, uh, and then you start actually wondering whether they thought that you at university was, was the correct framework. And the answer is that in most cases, unfortunately, it's not. So at university, they teach us that um, how do we get our hands on money as a private sector agent is uh, by banks. That is correct. In most cases, banks actually uh, have a very important function in delivering money towards the private sector, but it's not how it is explained. So there are two ways of explaining that. The first is that banks lend deposits away, and the second is that banks lend reserves away. Now, neither of the two are correct. They're just plain wrong. That's not how it works. So the, the way it works is that banks create new money when they lend, which means that every time a bank makes a loan, it expands its balance sheet both on the, on the asset side and on the liability side. Now, you have to think about the entire banking system, not a single bank, because a bank can make a loan to Ahan to go and buy a house, for example. It doesn't mean that when Ahan buys the house with the newly created credit, which has been credited on his bank account, the recipient of the, of the newly created money, so the seller of the house, maybe he banks with another bank which means the deposit will flow towards another bank. But the entire banking system balance sheet has extended the moment Bank A decided to lend money to Ahan to go and buy a house or a car or anything that is, that is out there. Banks do not lend existing deposits. Ben banks create new deposits every time they lend. That's the first important thing to understand, that banks are extremely relevant when it comes to increasing or decreasing the amount of disposable money that the private sector can have at any point in time, because they are the agent responsible to create most of the money the private sector transacts with, which is bank deposits in, indeed. The other thing to uh, immediately um, debunk as a myth is that banks need or lend reserves. And that is just not correct. So. Um, Reserves sit on the asset side of the balance sheet. So that would be already <laughs> interesting to think that banks do what, like turn these reserves into something else via multiplier. Well, in reality, this, this all uh, actually relates to the minimum reserve requirement ratio. And so there is this idea for which banks have to, earn, have to own a certain amount of bank reserves at the central bank. Generally speaking, this is binding regulation in many jurisdictions, although we have seen this regulation even being scrapped away for periods of time. And then people would, would look at the asset side of the commercial bank and say, hey, if commercial banks own one unit at, at, the, at the central bank, 
uh, as a reserve and then they have an asset side which is this big, it means they must be multiplying these reserves, right? No, not really. So bank reserves are not transferable to the private sector because to own bank reserves, you need to post them at the central bank. And I don't know about you, Ahan, but I do not have an, uh, an account at the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve. And nobody else says, unless it is a commercial bank or another, you know, very few selected um, players that the Federal Reserve allows to have a master account at the Fed. The private sector is not one of those. So long story short, the private sector actually gets their money mostly from banks when they lend money. So they create new deposits for the private sector or from the government. So when it comes to government money creation, that's a more another tricky uh, uh, thing to discuss because people would say, well, central banks print money and that's how the government or government-related entities actually create new money, which is, uh, let me say, theoretically correct if you define money as financial system money. But we're talking about private sector money. And for the very same reason for which I cannot have bank reserves in my account, when a central bank prints money, which means thus quantitative easing, uh, according to the mainstream media interpretation, they increase their balance sheet on the asset side by creating new reserves, uh, sorry, by, on the liability side by creating new reserves and on the asset side, they buy bonds with it. And then what about these reserves? Well, these reserves become the asset of the commercial bank, not the asset of Alf or Ahan. So we have not seen our own balance sheet increase as a, as a result of QE. So our own am disposable amount of money as private sector doesn't go up immediately when a central bank does QE, it goes up when the government continues to print deficits or when commercial banks lend. So we explain commercial banks, but what about the government, which is the entity, the public entity, which can effectively increase the amount of spendable money we have. That happens because deficits effectively blow a hole in the government balance sheet. The government balance sheet doesn't work like my balance sheet. The government can expand this effectively going into negative equity, their balance sheet by blowing a hole into it because they are not the consumer of the currency. They are the issuer of the currency in the first place. So they decide how much money they want to inject into the private sector. Which basically, another way to think of it is that public sector liabilities are the private sector net assets, which also means that when the government is doing surpluses, it is withdrawing money from our bank accounts. And think about it, surpluses means more taxes. It means, you know, it means the government is draining resources from the private sector. When the government, like in 2021, goes ballistic sending checks to Hans place, lucky you, you live in the US, I didn't see any checks in Europe. But when that happens, my bank deposit is going up, either because they're literally sending me a check and I, and I cash it in on a bank deposit or because they're lowering taxes or they're guaranteeing bank lending towards me. So they're making sure my net wealth goes up. And that's how money gets printed. Spendable money for the private sector gets printed by the government. Very long answer, and I'm sorry for that, but I needed to get this off my chest. Alfonso, that was a fantastic answer though. Um, and not only because you touched on many things that are near and dear to my heart. Um, in particular, I think, um, the notion that banks lend reserves, you know, if we actually look through history, if you were genuinely lending out reserves prior to GFC, there would be almost no lending. <laughs> That's um, true. That's another you know, good point. If you actually look at the level of reserves maintained, banks were actually incentivized not to maintain reserves. They were incentivized to go out and lend reserves and not lend reserves, but they would go out to lend money. So the 
reserve balances in the system prior to GFC just wouldn't have led to any kind of lending. So I think, um, and then what you're saying with regards to fiscal expansion relative to monetary expansion, right? I think that the fiscal channel, we've all seen the strength of the impulse of the fiscal channel. And the treasury is an extremely, treasuries and treasury related securities, which are basically just government liabilities and private sector assets have an extremely unique property, which are kind of like real assets for profitability in that they are one of the only things that can create income and wealth without creating a cost. And that's what makes them the impetus for financial sector activity. Now, we've talked about, we've established that commercial banks do not lend reserves, right? They go out and create credit, you know, so they create a channel on the balance sheet. The question I think that comes is how does this go from balance sheet activity into income activity in the economy? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so you're basically uh, asking me to replicate or discuss Professor Steve Keen's work on private uh, credit creation against public credit creation. And you are very right because those two are pretty different. So let's, let's, let's think about it. So when the government creates money, they basically blow a deficit, blow a hole through the balance sheet via, via doing deficits and they transfer net assets to the private sector. This comes at no additional liabilities effectively to the private sector. So what has happened is that somebody else, without asking for your permission, has literally lower taxes and or uh, sent you a check home, one of these sorts. And this is the government effectively handing over money to the private sector. You, you can then do two things, or generally the outcome of this transaction will be uh, two, two things. A, you as the private sector will feel compelled about recycling this money and creating income and you know, performing income generating activities with this, uh, with this money. Or you would not feel comfortable about uh, going out and spending this money. You would use this money to destroy existing credit, which is what Japan has done effectively. Japanese people have decided to do effectively since the big deleveraging after the real estate bubble burst. And this is already quite an important distinction between public sector uh, credit generation and private sector credit generation, because the public sector, again, can decide unilaterally to move credit to the, to the private sector, but then the private sector can either refuse or embrace this, right? And why Japanese, uh, the Japanese private sector decided to refuse this is that after the deleveraging episode of the, of the real estate bubble out there, well, basically, the private sector didn't feel at all that there were conditions to effectively deleverage anymore. And so anytime they got the chance, they decided to reduce their existing leverage. So that's a very defensive stance towards this unilateral decision. The other one is what happened in 2021 in the US, where the government created a large, large, large amount of money, and people didn't feel there was any need to deleverage. Uh, and therefore, they went out and either spent the money or they bought meme stocks or whatever they did with that money, right? But why is this government money creation very different from the private sector money creation? Is because the private sector money creation needs a willing borrower to show up. Um, and that, that is a very different set of circumstances because the willing borrower needs to show up and he knows that private sector credit creation results in both liabilities going up and assets going up. So think about a mortgage, right? You show up at a bank and ask for a mortgage. The bank cannot shove the mortgage down your throat 
You need to ask for a mortgage, be eligible for one. And then at that point, you'll accept that your balance sheet will expand both on the liability side and on the asset side. That's what you accept, right, with it. And therefore, and, and as well, you have to know that as private sector agent, you will need earnings, cash flows, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to service these liabilities uh, on, on the liability side of your balance sheet to basically, to basically uh, you know, make sure that your leverage can remain intact throughout time and you can enjoy the newly acquired assets with the credit you created. Now, because of this uh, dichotomy, Professor Steve Keen, but also others have, have done some quite interesting work showing that most of the fragilities in financial uh, system and the economy happen when private sector liabilities compared to net worth or earnings or real cash flows actually reach very high levels. And that happens because, again, you are also increasing your liabilities this way. And as long as this increase is too big vis-a-vis -vis your ability to generate cash flows to services liabilities as a private sector agent, you're going to have some trouble at some point. Opposedly, while everybody else obsesses about government sector liabilities, the government is the issuer of the currency, which doesn't mean it can't go wrong. Of course, it can go wrong, but the risk reward of government sector credit creation is generally much better because it transfers net assets to the private sector, but not the additional net liability. So... What you're telling me sounds, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but there seems to be what you're getting at is that there is a link between the real capacity constraints and real potential in the economy relative to the amount private sector balance sheets can, can expand. So that forms a sort of equilibrium. And on the government side, what do you think the limitation is? I'm leading the witness a little bit here, but in terms of what do you think is the constraints on credit creation for the private sector and the public sector? And how does that fit into an economic cycle if you believe that those exist? A very good question. So the constraint definitely sits on the, on the private sector balance sheet and capacity to leverage more and more. It's very intuitive, Ahan. I mean, think about your own income capacity and think about levering up 10 times your income. How would you feel about that? Of course, it's a function of interest rates, as everybody say. If you give me negative interest rates, then I can leverage much, much more than I can if interest rates are at 5%. But there are very intuitive constraints towards private sector credit creation. When it comes to public sector, the constraints are very different in nature, and I think they mostly depend on um, public perception of balance sheet um, let's say, wealth, balance sheet, uh, credit worthiness, let me call it like that, of, of the public sector. So what happens is, obviously, the government has a budget. And nowadays, we think that the government is constrained in resources, which in principle, in principle, it's not. Um, and therefore, we tend to redirect certain items from the government balance sheet and budget towards certain spending, right, and, or, or incomes. And as you, if you would expand your liabilities immensely, and you would keep or, or prevailing interest rates would be unchanged, what you would happen is that the, the interest rate expenditure on your government that will be very large. And if you still want to comply to these kind of far-fetched constraints that you're living in today, then you would have to redirect resources from other uh, private sector injection of assets, basically of, of, uh, of worth, towards paying for your interest rate um, expenses, right? So it all comes back to what does the public think of government debt and what does the public think of um, 
these bank deposits effectively that are created or this currency, this spendable money that is created and that they use every day for productive economic purposes coming out of the government balance sheet. It's a very, I know it's a non-quantitative uh, answer that I'm giving here, but in reality, it really sits with the combination of real interest rates where the government effectively would try somehow to enhance or engineer uh, a, or let's say to compound an already existing long-term decline in real interest rates, which has to do with demographics, productivity levels being very low. If, you, if they would try to ride by a monetary policy debt trend in lowering real interest rates, the public, the, the private sector would feel that by having their risk-free deposits not being rewarded at all, actually being penalized for sitting idle somewhere. That's one sort of release valve that the government has and one potential constraint if this gets stretched for too long. I mean, if real interest rates go to negative 5% or 10%, the private sector might have some adverse reactions that could at least test this long-term strategy or, or apply some sort of constraint. And the other one could be that, you know, the private sector starts doubting whether uh, the, basically what is the real purchasing power they can get out of these newly created bank deposits coming from, from the government. So more than, than, than from a quantity perspective, it has to do with the perception of the private sector, which is the user of this currency or currency, this form of money issued by the government, which instead is the issuer of the currency itself. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. I think that um, being multi-factor is not necessarily not being quantitative. Um, so I, I think another way of potentially thinking about the symptoms of this currency stability is one, the, the stability of your FX, right? So, you know, in when we have in EM countries, what you will typically see is when governments tend to engage in what I would call nefarious activities, um, they typically tend to see extreme instability in their FX. On, domestically, this kind of lack of confidence tends to manifest during these periods of rapid inflation and inflation volatility more than any particular level of inflation. And I think that kind of the, the limiting factors, at least in the work that I've done on what a government do in terms of its, its monetary impulse, not to speak about necessarily currencies and things like that. So, you know, I, I think we have a good sense of, you know, the, the comprehensiveness of your approach. And to me, it makes perfect sense to think about these two entities completely differently. The question a lot of people are going to have on their minds is how do we take these views and translate them into positions or some kind of strategic understanding? How does your macro compass translate all this rich information into something we can use? So um, effectively, I, uh, what, I, mean, I use many, many macro inputs towards my asset allocation and uh, portfolio decisions in the end. But what I display uh, is, is a portion of those, or I try to do my best to sort of summarize them. And the macro compass is effectively a very simple tool that guides, I think, my, my asset allocation from a certain perspective. And it uses two metrics. It's, it's basically a compass with four quadrants, and there is an x-axis and a y-axis. And uh, effectively, the two um, drivers of these will be the global credit impulse, which is a prop metric I built that effectively looks at the acceleration or deceleration in the amount of money that the private sector has, spendable amount of money that the private sector has. And it doesn't measure the level, but it measures the acceleration or deceleration of this amount. So it's, it's a rate of change metric. And the other is a, um, a, a, another prop metric, which is a blend 
of metrics that try to capture whether the monetary policy stance applied by different central banks around the world is tight or loose in a relative term. So we have to try and explain a little bit further what that means. When central banks set monetary policy, what they do is they, well, they, they have a, blend, a bunch of, of, of uh, tools, the most blunt one being interest rates, but then they have a bunch more. They can they have repos, reverse repos. They have uh, uh, lending towards banks, like in Europe, they did TLTRO, for example. They have quantitative easing, quantitative tightening, et cetera. Now, I try to measure whether the monetary policy stance in aggregate is loose or tight against neutral. And neutral would be this very difficult to grasp concept under which there is one interest rate that effectively allows the economy to run at its potential growth, not overheating, not cooling down too much. It's an interest rate at which the economy can deliver its potential GDP growth. So I have my estimate for neutral rates, and then I try to estimate by a blend of measures whether monetary policy is loose or tight, or it's moving. Also here, it's a rate of change story, not, also an, not only an absolute level story, whether it's moving towards being too loose or too tight, let's say. While the credit impulse, on the other hand, measures whether the private sector is receiving a, an accelerating or decelerating impulse of spendable money creation, either from banks or from the government. Now, what happens when you look at this quadrant is that you're trying to capture two different worlds. You're trying to capture a world of how much resources does the private sector has and it could potentially spend at any point in time. And that credit impulse effectively leads pretty well a bunch of indicators earnings growth, um, even inflation pressures, GDP growth, and of course, cyclical, especially the relative value expressions within asset classes, whether equities are going to outperform or out underperform bonds, whether cyclicals will outperform or underperform defensives, et cetera, et cetera. So it gives you a pretty good idea of whether economic growth is going to pick up, whether the second derivative of economic growth is going to pick up too. So that generally anticipates how people are going to behave when it comes to asset allocation. So think, for instance, 2020, credit impulse goes absolutely through the roof because the governments print a huge amount of money, not the central bank, I'm talking about the governments in this case, they hand over to the private sector a large amount of money. And at some point with a little bit of a lag, six to nine months later, this amount of money gets actually recycled into economic activity, especially when we reopened, right? So there are many nuances to be considered, but I think it's easy to follow the rationale as it is easy to follow the rationale on the opposite side, because since half of 2021, uh, we didn't have nearly the same amount of incremental government spending or incremental bank lending to offset the credit cliff coming from uh, basically the fiscal drag that we are experiencing right now. So when the private sector gets much less resources thrown at it, normally economic growth slows down too, and also asset allocation has, is impacted somehow. On the other axis, you have, let's say, more the financial measurement, let's say. So you have, you have a measure of whether the impact of the monetary authority decisions are helping, enhancing, or you know, basically uh, hampering the process of economic growth or, or, or inflation. So when a central bank wants to slow down economic growth and inflation, they tend to be above neutral rate. And what is important as well is how fast they get there. And so you tend to move as well on the other axis of the macro compass, and you end up always in one of the four quadrants. And the different quadrants effectively reflect the different asset allocation, which I've backtested for the last 50 years against how basically asset classes have performed when we moved from a quadrant where we moved from being very deep into a quadrant, transitioning into another one. And this compass guides me towards the asset allocation decisions, which are then compounded with a bunch of other metrics, including 
you know, within a certain quadrant, obviously you have a bunch of asset classes that could outperform, which one do you choose to overweight the most also has to do with valuations. So then you have to look at how the market is basically assessing the risk reward of a certain asset class against your own subjective probabilities, which are dictated by a data-driven model, correct, but still are your subjective assessment against what the market is pricing in and try as well to, to skew your asset allocation based on that. You know, the, the multiple, the two, actually the two different strands I want to pull out. Well, there's one aspect that seems to be a counter-cyclical counter gauge, right? You, you're looking at conditions relative to some estimate of equilibrium and how stretched you are. On the flip side, there's the pro-cyclical aspect, which I know based off your, your work experience and, you know, the things I've seen you write that you're very careful about listening to what markets are telling you at the same time in terms of risk management. So we have, we typically tend to have all these equilibrium ideas and we're very far away from where we need to be, but it can be very painful and long until we get there. Right. So how do you manage those risks in, and you know, in an investment portfolio? So again, a very good question. Uh, and it really depends from what are you trying to achieve with your portfolio. So I have basically two portfolios. One is a very retail friendly, I would say long-term ETF portfolio, which tends to be long only too. So that the aim of that portfolio is to try and achieve a return adjusted for inflation, which is above 0%. It doesn't sound very fancy, but the outcome of that should be to preserve your purchasing power over time and maybe to enhance it a tiny bit. If you're able to do that without facing severe drawdowns that can lead you to make what I call stupid decisions, which is effectively to just review your entire um, approach and maybe fire sell something because you know, you're too nervous about a certain asset class, it means you've taken way too much risk on board compared to your, to your risk tolerance. So that portfolio takes care mostly of that. And how do you manage risks in that portfolio is A, a very good assessment of your risk tolerance. It's very, very important. B, um, how do correlations behave when you are in certain, in certain quadrants of the compass? Actually, it's not only about how much you allocate to certain asset classes, but how do they interact with each other in your portfolio to make sure your total drawdowns are somehow manageable, right? So that's another thing you really need to be careful about. And well, the third one would, as always, be uh, effectively be respectful of the fact that you can be wrong. Uh, I mean, that's something I've learned the hard way running money is that you will be wrong. And so I always make a joke that amongst a large account on Twitter, I must be the only one that tweets stopped out on this trade, probably the only one, I don't know. I have uh, head tips if there are others. Um, and I, I really embrace this. And this philosophy is, is much more even evident in the tactical portfolio, which instead tends to be a total return uh, target portfolio where you know I have a certain volatility target in mind, I have a certain return target in mind, and there I would look to risk a certain amount of assets under management per single trade. And I would look at, you know, what is basically the risk reward I want to have in a certain trade? How do I express it? Trying to limit my downside. So that is a much more tactical approach effectively to investing than, than it is the long-term approach. Generally one to three months. It's, I'm not a day trader. I'm, I'm a macro guy. So I will not try to rotate portfolios according to whatever it's happening today. I would still have a medium to long-term view, I would say, but I would approach it much more tactically. And there the risk management is done via uh, calibrating the sizing of your positions, not by <laughs> basically investing the same amount of notional for each position, but by weighting that notional 
by the implied and realized vol volatility of each asset class. I've seen way too many, even smart people, assuming that buying you know, 10 futures in, in, uh, in euro dollar, in front end euro dollar is the same as buying uh, whatever, uh, three bitcoins. It's, it's not the same. So you, you, ne you need basically to weigh your positions by implied and realized volatility and to make sure that you put your stop losses, that's also very important, where, they, where the price action has invalidated your base case scenario. Because your base case scenario will be invalidated plenty of times. My hit rate is 54%, not 70, not 80, 54% on this portfolio. But it is all about where do I put my stop loss? Is it far enough to so that the price action has definitely invalidated my base case macro thesis? And the second important thing is, have I basically chosen a, a measure that fits my strategy when it comes to how big is, is the drawdown within a stop loss. So am I, what is my time horizon? Is it one month, three months? Where am I placing my stop loss given that time horizon? Many people actually confuse their time horizons and their strategies while applying stop losses. And the third important thing is to respect religiously those stop losses. There is no exception. There is no, this time will recoup higher, uh, Paul Tudor Jones printed a very large poster ahead of his screens that says, losers average losers. And that is exactly what I believe is, is one of the main problems people trying to approach tactically the market. If there is a stop loss, there is a stop loss. Alfonso, thank you for explaining all of that. I think we have a very good picture of how you think of the world and how you structure it into a risk management process that's extremely prudent in terms of managing losses, which honestly, in this business is more than half the game. If you can manage your, your drawdowns and losses, um, on the long side, at least you can make money while sleeping. Um, so I think this is a great jumping off point for we've established this, 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 you know, large framework for looking at things, this multi-factor framework of looking at things, which is both, you know, a risk management and also a lot of monetary economics. What's that telling you about the US today? You know, I, I think if you could particularly focus on the inflation picture because that seems to be top of mind for most that would be great yeah. but you know feel free to go anywhere what, what yeah. do you think of the u.s macro environment right now so we will be sitting right now in what is the worst possible and most unfriendly uh quadrant within the macro compass you would have the credit impulse flashing red big times because of large amount of credit cliff coming both especially from the government sector but also from uh, the banking sector across the g5 economies it is not picking up uh, the long-term lending growth not credit cards but i'm talking about long-term lending growth towards consumers to the, to the point where it could not nearly offset the the drop in um, in um, government credit creation that is leading to quite a sharp drawdown in the credit impulse, even faster than the great financial crisis drawdown. Obviously, being a rate of change metric, it is also impacted by how much we printed in 2021. But hey, that's how rate of change works. And that's how the economy works, mostly via impulses rather than by absolute levels or first derivative changes. So that is looking pretty bad. Uh, and then the other one um, would be the monetary policy stance where the Federal Reserve has made very clear that their objective is to fight inflation. And how you fight inflation is to bring real interest rates above neutral interest rates, R star in this case, which means bringing real interest rates roughly to positive levels. Powell has been very, very vocal about that. 
And he has been also very, uh, I would say, practical about achieving that until July, until the July FOMC. The July FOMC, his message was much more nuanced, much more data dependent, much less on autopilot, trying to bring real interest rates to, uh, to tight levels and keep them there. And the market, you know, it, it tried to give the market an inch probably, and the market took the entire mile and more after that. So um, you are in a situation in which I still think that the central bank is pretty committed to make sure that inflation slows down. And they are looking at the, the most lagging indicator of all. I mean, in, in macro, there are forward-looking indicators, coincident indicators, lagging indicators. Inflation tends to be amongst the most lagging one, especially core. I mean, if they want to see the rent of shelter coming down, core services, X energy coming down. Well, good luck. It's going to take quite a while, right? And they will probably, because of their mandate, and it's not their fault, it's just how the mandate is built right now, because the labor market is still holding up okay-ish, it's not super strong as headlines would suggest, but it's holding on relatively okay. They have this timing consistency problem, I think, where they look at one side of the mandate, which is looking extremely healthy, the labor market, the other side of the mandate, which is looking way, way, way outside control, which will basically bring them to tighten monetary policy. So to put yourself again on a tight side of the macro compass, while the credit impulse, which is the other axis of the, mac of the macro compass, is also telling you that things are looking pretty grim ahead for economic growth. When both the credit impulse is looking pretty bad and monetary authorities are tightening, that's, that's basically the, the, the most unfriendly situation for risk assets. That has been the case indeed for the first six months of the year, where no asset class delivered positive real returns apart from commodities, which were well, mostly supply bottlenecks commodities actually rallied. Uh, so I'm talking about oil and oil proxies in general, energy proxies. Was, this was the only asset class that delivered positive real returns. Everything else actually lost money, as you would expect in this environment, right? So now it's all about what comes next. And the credit impulse is not picking up. And by the way, it tends to lead economic activity with a couple of quarters to three quarters. So it means that I expect the economy to continue decelerating, but also inflation to decelerate. So it's a nominal activity drop from here. That would be my base case scenario. And the nominal activity drop, while the central bank still has to keep a relatively tight stance, suggests to me that the bond market is where you will see probably the best returns out there, especially the belly five, 10 year, even, even longer than that. The front end is, will be much more anchored towards the Fed expectations and the Fed policy, but five to 10 years down the road, you will have to price in that the damage that has been done to the real economy needs to be reflected in forward Fed funds future being lower than people expect. And therefore capturing that residual term premium and the residual um, cuts not being priced in yet by markets could actually be pretty decent on top of it bonds should deliver a a decent uh, drawdown dampener to to risk assets which i think over the last week or month have actually staged an incredible rally that is now getting much broader than tech it's it's now hitting meme stocks uh, turkey uh, cds is 120 basis point either in a month like you know even turkey has become a more investable place all of a sudden the Brazilian real is rallying, the cyclical commodities are rallying. And I think that re-rating up in growth is not consistent, not consistent with many forward-looking macro indicators out there. So I want to add um, a little bit of 
perspective from our side as well at Prometheus, because we're very much on the same side as you, you know, for the first half of the, well, for the second quarter of the year, we were basically extremely bearish on equity beta. But I think that the the time for equity beta to be in, be the short and be where you get alpha is much, much harder relative now to taking in bond beta. Right. So the, the the playbook for, oh, we're having massive inflation volatility relative to what's expected typically of inflation, that's passing a little bit. And, you know, when we look at things, we're kind of looking at the, com- the commodity impulse relative to the trend in services is going to determine where inflation is going to be over the next six months. So what that means, the list that as commodity prices hopefully we expect them to continue to break down, right? That will continue to contribute to a deceleration in inflation. But the sustained trend in services inflation will likely keep the rate of inflation at a level that's not comfortable for most and definitely not for the Fed. So markets will focus on the deceleration, but the Fed will likely focus on the level of inflation. Resultantly, we're likely to stay on this path of tightening, right? And Contrary to what maybe a lot of mainstream people think, quantitative tightening has actually been something that has been very difficult for bonds. So that has been, well, it was difficult for yields. It's been very good for bonds, right? So as a result, you typically during quantitative tightening, you have this flight to quality, right? And I think that that's another layer that really helps the trade that you're lining out. So Alfonso, um, you've laid out that you'd like to be long the long end, right? So what could go wrong with your trade and how are you going to risk manage this? Yeah. So as a trade, again, if you would consider this as a tactical uh, allocation within your portfolio, I would say the reason why you can be wrong first and foremost is if we really get a soft landing. Uh, If we get a a soft landing, then what that means is that economic growth is actually surprising on the upside. We need to re-rate much higher than we think it could be. And also, we, we are going to see at the same time inflation coming down pretty aggressively. When that happens, the Federal Reserve can be very confident in, in lifting the, the foot of the gas pedal when it comes to tightening, which also means that the curve is naturally going to steepen. Because what, what's going to happen is that people are going to price in future real economic growth being actually pretty decent as the Federal Reserve won't hike us into a recession, literally, as inflation is coming down and growth is keeping up pretty okay. And this, the very fact that growth is, is actually holding up pretty okay would also have to reprice the real rate component of that uh, nominal yield trade in there. It will re-rate third-year yields pretty higher and 10 to 30-year yields pretty higher than they are today. So that's the reason why I could be wrong. Uh, and I, I think that is probably the main reason. The other one, this is a wild card, would be if the Federal Reserve would decide that the curve is too flat. And then they would come in with, uh, a terrible mistake, I think judgment mistake, would, would be to sell, actively sell long and bonds from the balance sheet. And then I would, I would hear people saying, yeah, but Alf, you know, they don't have enough uh, 10 to 30 year bonds to sell to steepen the curve, which is wrong because people look at notionals, they should look at the duration intensity of these bonds. When you go to a market maker and you say yours, and he has to absorb 10 million of, of delta per basis point in that I can guarantee that it needs to make some room in its balance sheet and yields needs to be need to be temporarily higher for him to accommodate this additional risk that the Federal Reserve is basically forcing down its throat. This could be another another black swan um, that could make my trade go wrong. 
what I would do about it, uh, managing the trade from a tactical perspective is what I would do with any other trade. So I would, I would look at what is my time horizon. Let's say I'm a, I'm a month to three months uh, tactical investor. I would try to set uh, risk, uh, let's say uh, stop losses, generally speaking, at a point where I feel I'm wrong. The price action is, is telling me I'm wrong. I personally do that by setting stops between one and one and a half standard deviation on a monthly rolling basis away from my entry point. If the market is behaving as such that on a monthly basis, in rolling return terms, I am more than one standard deviation wrong, probably means that my macro thesis was roughly wrong. We're talking about if the return uh, are, are normally distributed, a 25 to 30% chance that um, I can be wrong. If I hit that chance and it's been a month, so I can't blame it on A, some passive investor, A, some vault targeting fund is lifting everything, you know, a month or more is a relatively long period of time to digest these flows as well then it generally means for me that I am wrong. So I would just stop out at that point, to be very honest, and then I would only enter the trade. That's the other point of view. I would only enter the trade if I would feel that the reward I can get out of the trade is at least as big as the downside I can get out of the trade. Why is that? Because if my hit rate, if my hit rate is slightly above 50%, as long as my wins are slightly larger than my losses at the end of the year, I will have a positive p &L. It's all about mathematics. It's all about managing your losses at the end of the day, as you said before, Ahan. So I would just manage it as every other trade, keeping in mind that if the narrative continues to evolve for a month or more in a one sigma plus environment, re-rating growth higher, pushing these third year yields you know, roughly 20, 30, 40 basis points away, I don't have the exact number on top of my head now, against me, then I probably have to be humble enough to recognize that my macro thesis was wrong. This is going to happen plenty more times, by the way. Excellent. I think that our listeners should, you know, obviously take heed of the trade, right? But at the same time, try to extract the principles you've outlined for how you manage your risk around your trade and also how you come to your trade because I think that that's going to be much more valuable for anybody over the long term to be you know, incrementally better at doing this. You've laid out a very comprehensive way of one, getting to a trade, and then actually how, how to manage it through its life cycle. And I think that that's extremely valuable. Alfonso, I can't thank you enough uh, for being on. We're coming up on time. Um, if you'd like, um, wh why don't you give our listeners kind of where they can find more of your work or get in touch with you? Yeah, sure, Ahan. So that's uh, at the macrocompass.substack.com. So it's, uh, it's a free newsletter I publish once a week. You normally have a breakdown of what I think has happened uh, that is pretty relevant on a global macro perspective. So it could be a data release. It could be what I see happening across asset classes that I, then I piece together the macro puzzle and come up with the second section of the newsletter, which is always a portfolio update, both long-term ETF portfolios and tactical portfolios. It's uh, free so in case you guys want to check it out just go on the macrocompass.substack.com or simply google the macrocompass and you're going to find it alternatively i have a twitter handle called at macroalf which is I, I try to keep it as as relevant and information packed as much as i can occasionally you're going to find some pizza recipe or i'm at the seaside in italy so please please allow me that too fantastic um alfonso thanks so much uh for being on again for our audience, I couldn't recommend Alfonso's uh, newsletter and anymore. And I definitely, I enjoy his uh, weekly podcast very much as well. So definitely give both of those a check. Alfonso, thanks again.
Thanks, Ahan. Been a pleasure.